What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. It's time for the Bible. Bible Geek here, Robert M. Price, ready to uh, stump myself with a lot of good questions from erudite Bible geeks. Uh, Let's see, this is from, uh, let's see, Rick Dukevich. He says, I have a friend who lives here in Michigan, but he grew up in East London. He offhandedly started telling me today about Cockney rhyming slang as if I should know what the heck he was talking about. I asked him to explain it to me because although I'm well-read and love obscure trivia in history, science, and culture, I'd never heard of Cockney rhyming slang. And uh, you can look it up on uh, Wikipedia, and there's some interesting stuff about it. And he says, what a fascinating concept. I always assumed that local slang and street dialects branched off from the main tongue because of a lazy indifference to following the proper rules of grammar. But Cockney rhyming slang is an active and complicated cryptolect that encodes the language to confuse outsiders. It's said that these codes were used by street people like beggars, traders, or criminals in order to communicate secretly. Now, you remember, folks, whenever Paulie Gava one writes in, he, he uses that stuff. Like me old China, uh, the idea of being uh, my old friend, my old mate, and China plate rhymes with mate, and stuff like that, right? So that's what we're talking about here. Um... Uh, Being a long-time listener to the Bible Geek, this secret way of communicating made me think of Gnosticism and the mystery religions that you often talk about. I'm wondering if you know of secret words and phrases that were used as secret code to keep the common folk from the inner circle's truth, quote-unquote, capital T. I I don't exactly, uh, to tell you the truth, but there was uh, sometimes just a refusal to say anything, uh, about it when the subject came up because you'd be in trouble if you did sometimes you just uh the the i guess you might say the cryptolect was 
lip service to the Catholic creeds when, uh, in fact, you knew what they really meant, right? And uh, But there certainly is a, a cryptolect in Gnosticism because they were great speakers in tongues. I think it's the Gnostics in Corinth uh, who are the, uh, the, the same guys that ate meat uh, offered to idols were the pneumaticoi who spoke in tongues and prophesied. Well, they they did speak in tongues, and there are, I don't know what you'd call it, transcripts of it, onomatopoetic representations of it uh, in some of the Nagamati texts. And uh, that, uh, I mean, some of them are just too weird to be pronounceable names, and it's pretty clear they're, they're supposed to be glossolalic utterances or formulae. Um, but, uh, I don't know. Of course, we got the same thing in, uh, emails from terrorists, right? They, or on Tony Soprano, did you get the package and stuff like that? Uh, and, uh, so, uh, it, it does go on. And I guess, uh, there was at least a kind of a private language. I also think of the great Doc Savage novels by Lester Dent and many others writing under the house name of Kenneth Robeson. Uh, Doc, uh, who was a genius uh, superhero, very much like Batman, uh, he had cracked the Mayan language. I don't know if anybody has since. This is written in the 30s when nobody had, so they said that Doc had, and he taught it to his five assistants so that they could speak in the open without being understood, and they spoke Mayan. Oh boy, what great books those are. Okay, um, uh, who's next? Tim. Is this? Yeah, Tim from Australia. My question concerns. Uh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I uh, think I'm. Yeah, a non Bible question first. Is your use of the term fascinating, inspired by Mr. Spock? Could you please read the following in your best Spock voice? I don't think I got a good voice from Mr. Spock, though I wish I did, but let's see. If the word sensor and di- the word direction and stuff like that doesn't come up, I don't know if I can, but we'll see. Uh, I don't know if it did or not. Uh, it, it is the same sort of thing, uh, but I, I think I just am using it uh, as that character does. I don't think I got it from him, though maybe I uh, did. I mean, I saw Star Trek when it was first on and have seen them all many times since. It's possible. Uh, interesting. Um, uh, my question concerns debate resolution passages in the New Testament. I refer to passages such as Matthew five seventeen through 20 about how the law, often seen as a refutation of the Marcionites, Captain, or John eighteen twenty about Jesus not doing any teaching in secret, a refutation of the Gnostics. Another example is Luke twenty four thirty nine through 43 about Jesus having flesh and blood and asking for something to eat and eating in front of those presents, a re- present a refutation of the Klinga, I mean the Docetists. These passages, which are clearly anachronistic and therefore entirely fiction, really intrigue me. Could you give me some other examples and perhaps comment on these passages in general? Why would anyone have thought that the Jesus of the first century would have said these things? These groups, Docetists, Gnostics, and Marcionites, did not even exist at the time of Jesus. I think I've heard you mention 
Before, some criteria for historical Jesus material that can be used to weed out non-historical material as opposed to the typical criteria which are used to establish what might be historical. Was this one of them? Anachronism would appear logically uh, to render any such material fictitious. Finally, to get a look at the other side, what are the apologetic responses to the critical claims about these verses as debate resolution passages? Well, thanks, Tim. Uh, Also, uh, like uh, F.C. Bauer called such things tendentious, like there's some axe grinding going on here. Well, I think you're right. Uh, It it does look like uh, the thing about the law. I mean, that one just screams that it's... uh, some uh, trying to one up somebody win the argument by putting your uh, opinion on the lips of Jesus uh, he says I don't go thinking that uh, I have uh, come to abolish the law and the prophets now that that implies uh, that don't think that somebody is saying it right uh, don't accept the belief the doctrine that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. In other words, what was the mission of Jesus? I came to set a father against those of his own household. It's a retrospective look at at Jesus. So, yeah, definitely. And then the specifics about the, uh, oh, yeah, the law and the prophets uh, uh, will, uh, whether heaven and earth will pass away, but uh, not one jot or tittle of the Torah shall pass away. And therefore, anybody who goes around, uh, anybody who uh, uh, breaks or sets aside the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, hint, hint, uh, will, I mean, that's obviously assuming somebody is doing it and doing it because they say Christ came to do that, right? Uh, well, that person will be the least in the kingdom of heaven, regarded least, uh, fewer, uh, Burger King crowns or something, uh, uh, and and whoever keeps even the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of. It's obviously, obviously about uh, warring Christian, well, disputing Christian factions who differ over, like in, in the Pauline epistles, Christ, Jesus Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes and. And others uh, that say you got to keep the Torah. Well, yeah, obviously that's what we have here. Uh, and, and you're right about the uh, the attempts to uh, refute Gnosticism, Docetism, and so on. Um, there's a book by I can't think of his name now. Just escapes me. Uh, anti-docetic Christology in John's Gospel, something like that, where he tries to show a number of places where uh, it, it's trying to refute docetism. Though the problem is, in almost every one of them, there's a counter thing. I mean, it's a real Derrida kind of a thing where you got a counter signature in the same context that indicates he uh, that uh, that perhaps he didn't have flesh and blood. Like uh, he's hungry. Can you get? So he sends the disciples to the local food line of Judah supermarket, and he asks the woman for a drink. But when they get back with the food, uh, he says, uh, "Nah, I have no. I'm sorry. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do him who do the will of him who sent me. Right? Wait, he doesn't need to eat, or he's on the cross and blood appears. Oh, that shows he's." truly uh, 
God, right? Or I'm sorry, truly, man, I'm not with it today. Uh, well, yeah, but it says he said, I thirst just because scripture said he had to. And and the water and the, the blood and the spirit came out, all right? And symbolically, yeah, something's odd here. Uh, Thomas says he's not going to believe Jesus rose from the dead if he doesn't get to touch the nail wounds. And Jesus says, okay, go ahead. And he doesn't. Ah, boy. So there's something weird going on there, but that just underlines the point all the more. You've got uh, you've got tendentious uh, rewritings and all that. Uh, the great book on the uh, attempt to refute Gnostics in Luke is the book by Charles H. Talbert, Luke and the Gnostics. Uh, another example would be the Great Commission narratives, uh, where Jesus resurrected from the dead, says that you got to go out and evangelize the world. If Jesus had said this, how is it possible that there were debates among the early Christians, Jewish Christians, whether they should go out and preach to Gentiles or not, right? It, it takes, and when Peter is unwilling to do it, what is it that persuades him? Well, it's a vision of the Holy Spirit and all of that stuff and an angel telling him what to do. Uh, it, why didn't he just think about the Great Commission or why didn't the uh, Spirit tell him, hey, you remember what Jesus said right before he left? Uh, why is no reference to that? Well, it's obvious that uh, these go out there and preach to all the nations passages were uh, a Attempts to weigh in on that debate and uh, co-opt the authority of Jesus to get your point established. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. And you're right; these groups couldn't have existed at the time of Jesus. Docetists, Gnostics, and Marcionites. I mean, there were people that uh, there may have been Gnostics, but not Christian Gnostics. That's that's the point. Um, oh, let's see. Let's see. Anachronism is a major. Uh, criterion that uh, is used by uh, critics to say, okay, well, he may have said some stuff, but he didn't say this. Uh, what do apologists say? Well, they usually try to reinterpret things and uh, and say, like uh, a famous one that's anachronistic is uh, Jesus turning to the crowds and saying, if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross and come after me. Well, uh, obviously, that is a, a a Christian reference. They're having Jesus say, look, I carried the cross. You're going to have to do the same thing. In fact, uh, it's said without being attributed to Jesus in First Peter. He left us an example uh, that, we, uh, that we should follow in his footsteps, suffering and so forth, right? Well, here, uh, they figure people to take it even more seriously if they had Jesus say it. So he does, but he didn't, right? And so what do apologists say? Oh, uh, uh, well, uh, maybe that phrase was already known as a recruitment slogan for the zealot party. Yeah, yeah, that's a ticket. Come on, conceivably, th that could be true, but it just it's obviously just an attempt to get out of a tight spot. As F.C. Bauer said, anything's possible. The historian wants to know what's probable. And uh, the uh, I will found my church things, right? That's uh, that's tendentious. Uh, the uh, put downs of the family of Jesus certainly is part of that uh, same succession dispute business. Now, who's going to lead the Christian community? The 12? Well, some passages say that, like 
Um, you will sit on 12 thrones governing the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, the 12 are in charge, but uh, the, uh, the, uh, the list of the relatives of Jesus in Mark 6, so who would keep a list of this unless it was a list of authorities, and for some people it was. So yeah, there uh, you got a good eye there for looking for these anachronistic, tendentious uh, bits. Okay, uh, this is from Jason in nearby Raleigh, North Carolina. We'll have to get together sometime, Jason. Says, Recently, I've been watching a new television series on AMC called Humans. Perhaps you've seen it as well, just the commercials. But if not, its basic subject is human relationships with humanoid robots in which alienation is a main theme. Some of these robots have been endowed by their creator with self-awareness along with additional coding that holds the potential for further cognitive and emotional development with the goal being true artificial intelligence or true AI. The creator of these bots was apparently a mad scientist type whose likeness has not yet been revealed, at least by episode four. It has been told that he worked with a team of scientists with the creator being a bit of an outcast due to his divergence from the group norm. While the basic scope of the show's story has been told before... Uh, there are many character nuances that make for an excellent updating of this subject. I think the the coming of the humanoids was an older movie that was sort of about this. Uh, watching this next episode, I could not help but relate it to the Archon myth hidden in Genesis and retold a number of times through the centuries. Uh, trying to not to give away too much here, but just in case, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! In episode 4, information is revealed that should certain events occur, these humanoid robots may have the ability to reproduce, that is, share their gift with the rest of the bots and create true AI across the robot spectrum. Tension has been building between certain characters and part of society as a whole throughout these episodes. Resistance is growing and there is severe trepidation of humans toward the robot's abilities. There's also extreme worry with regard to the bot's emotional advancement and potential to reproduce. It reminded me immense, uh, immediately of the Archon's warnings to Yahweh about his creation gaining the ability to procreate and that it would lead to their extinction a br- oh, very good yeah a brief vision in the show that led to the illumination included the shot of a tree which seemed to be a reference to the tree of knowledge it hasn't happened yet but i can't help but think that these robots will actualize their full potential at some point in the show what happens after that i don't know will they worship humans as their creating but faulty gods will they conquer and destroy all all humans who don't comply with their own plans. Um, by the way, you might enjoy a story of mine called um, um, ab- "What is it? Obsolete Absolute," uh, which is in, I think, an anthology called uh, "Chrome Cthulhu" or something—a story set in the future. 
Uh, let's see. Outside of the show, I also thought of recent news regarding the potential for AI and the, desi- the dire warnings by some in the scientific community, notably from Stephen Hawking and Bill Gates. There seems to be a lot of fear that parallels that within the show Humans. Essentially, we're now playing the part of the Archons and worrying about our future in the face of our own creation that we know will advance beyond our abilities. Think of Henry Pym inventing Ultron, or Tony Stark, if you prefer the movie version, inventing Ultron. Will our creations wipe us out as we apparently wiped out the archons and gods of old? It's fascinating to me that this age-old myth seems to be playing out for real in our current time. Perhaps I'm way off base here, but do you have any thoughts on the matter? Well, yeah, there is a good Gnostic parallel, because uh, the uh, uh, some of the Nag Hammadi texts uh, say that there are well I guess even the Valentinians say there's not just one human race that the body was created by the demiurge out of uh, crass matter uh, but the uh, the photons as I like to call it of the captured and shredded primal man, the man of light, uh, they are scattered through humanity and not every human being has one. Only those who do belong to the divine pleroma and can return there once they're fully awakened. The rest, nope. Uh, But the Valentinians said the people that don't have the spark can be saved anyway through faith in the death of Jesus. The the elite pneumaticoi uh, don't need that and then there are just basically two-legged animals like there uh, like uh, out there uh, and uh, that's uh, already assuming you know by spiritual and intellectual discernible differences that people are in effect in different human races and um, the the humans created by the Demiurge and his Archons are like a kind of robot. Uh, So the analogy is a very good one. uh, Of course, if this actually happened, it would be a case of not only... Well, you know, we already think that cultural selection has kind of taken the uh, the baton from natural selection and that we can control our own development now to some degree. Change the course of evolution. My favorite example being... uh, natural selection would eventually weed out all human beings with nearsightedness. We'd get run over by mammoths or trucks or whatever. But the people that could see what was coming and get out of the way would uh, live longer, have more kids with the same ability, and eventually dominate the species. But we decided, yeah, you know, I don't really want my uh, kids uh, or my wife to be mowed down by an oncoming bus what say we invent glasses? Okay, good idea. People not getting smashed so much. Of course, that means you're never going to get rid of nearsightedness out of the human race, but all right, we'll take that trade. That's cultural selection. Well, in this case, if um, Pym or Stark actually invented Ultron and he succeeded in destroying the human race, or the Cylons, the same thing, right? Uh, then you would have uh, cultural selection having replaced natural selection altogether. Oh, boy, fascinating. Thanks, Jason. Okay, uh, this is from Jim K. When I read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, uh, I also read your rebuttal book, by the way, I was astounded to hear 
the discussion of how close in time the writings of Paul and the Gospels were to the death of Jesus. At one point, I think Strobel wrote that some of Paul's writings occurred within two or three years of Jesus' death, which almost made me spit out my coffee, as I'd never heard anyone even attempt to place the writings that early. Yeah, uh, Jim. Usually, what they when they bring up numbers like that, they're they're saying that the list of resurrection appearances in First Corinthians fifteen goes back uh, that early. Not that First Corinthians fifteen itself does, but if it's quoting, you know, might as well uh, because the relevant material would. And I've argued vehemently against that. But some people just uh, some people have. Oh, I think C.C. Uh, Torrey, whose opinion on many, many things I take very seriously, thought that uh, the Gospels were written about 10 years after the death of Jesus. And I, I just think you, you can't really seriously argue that. Not anymore, anyway. Okay, In my research, I have found apologists' arguments usually laughable and, all, uh, and often completely facetious. You and me both. And they have no qualms stating that if something is possible, it probably happened. That's the key to their whole enterprise. So it occurred to me that there must be something in the writings that specifically precludes them from being contemporary with Jesus. Obviously, as death is depicted, so the finished version would have to occur after Jesus' death. But what stops apologists from going all the way and just saying, these writings came immediately after Jesus' death? I assume it must have something to do with the Jewish temple destruction in 70, but can you please elaborate on both the Gospels and the writings of Paul or Simon Magus that force apologists to accept the fact that they are mid to late first century works? I know you believe the Gospels to be even later, but I'm asking what is boxing them into the late first century? Um, let's see. I think of a number of assertions they make, taking this for granted, like Paul has said by tradition to have been executed of the order of Nero's, that would place it around 60, and they figure the Gospels are later than Paul, though that's a kind of general consensus view. I'm not sure if there is another reason for that. Uh, in uh, among apologists, of course, the prominence of the prospect of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple wouldn't bother apologists because they believe that uh, that you know why not genuine predictive prophecy? You know, I can't uh, if if you say well this must have been written after that, you're just showing you're an unbeliever, which is I think very unsound uh, for. Uh, critical reasoning. I, be I believe that uh, most of their their case, such as it is, now I may be missing something here, but I think it has to do with what Papias and Irenaeus say in uh, the uh, mid to late second century that Mark's gospel was uh, basically created from a set of notes Mark took from the impromptu preaching of Peter. He accompanied Peter and uh, was his secretary or amanuensis, and that it, Peter naturally you know, would share uh, what Jesus said. Uh, and, uh, and so he said he did, and uh, Mark faithfully recorded this stuff. Uh, and then uh, Irenaeus 
doubles that and says, well, uh, Luke did the same thing for Paul and wrote down his preaching and then polished it up as a narrative. Though that's obviously, I think, just an attempt to uh, claim some kind of nearly apostolic link for the Gospel of Luke, even though no one said Paul was an eyewitness. Papias said that uh, Matthew was the same as the disciple Matthew. I mean, it could have been named Matthew. Who knows? Plenty of people were. Um, and uh, in that case, uh, he had, his work must be eyewitness testimony. And if it was written a few decades later, what the heck? Uh, he needn't uh, have been unable to remember what he had heard. And then the Gospel of John, the belief that he was an eyewitness, based on church tradition in all these cases, not based on um, any real internal evidence. In fact, I think the way the Gospels are written belie this, uh, the whole eyewitness thing. Uh, and uh, so they they like to say, they of course they prefer to say that because they want to use the Gospels as evidence for what Jesus really did and said. So again, as you say, if it's conceivable, then it's probable, which is a huge leap. Uh, I believe that's, that's all based on that, and that, that is really building your house on sand. Um... Okay, uh, who's next? Oh boy, who is this? Oh boy, sorry, I think I missed the uh, the name again. Greetings from Minneapolis, where knowing your affinity for pizza, I recommend you try Parkway Pizza if you're if you're ever in town. I appreciate that suggestion. I will check it out if I haven't been there in a long time. I um don't uh, really have any plans to go back for another book tour or whatever. Got some great friends out there. Uh, let's see. Um, I've heard you explain the historicization of Jesus as an effort by emerging church leaders to gain credibility. Shake the hand that shook the hand and so on. Something along those lines occurred to me today. I haven't heard it before and would like your opinion. I think this applies regardless of whether there was a historical Jesus. Might the same, I'm sorry, might the doctrine of perpetual virginity of Mary have been an attempt by the emerging church to prevent anyone else from one-upping their founding authority? Uh, if there would be one obvious authority to overrule the teaching of Jesus' best buddy, Peter's students, 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 it would be his brothers or sisters' grandkids or great-grandkids. Even if Jesus had no kids and, Jesus, and James was known to be a lifelong virgin, that still leaves his brothers and sisters, and presumably some of them would or could have had kids. Whether the latter-day descendants were truly or just claimed to be of that line, it could have been hard for the church to combat. We can already see how tough it was for Paul to contradict James, assuming any semblance of historicity there. If that's the case, it makes sense for church leaders to stake their Petrine claim and close off all other options. Not only are you not grandkids of Jesus' brothers, uh, Judas or Joseph or Simon, but you couldn't be because Jesus had no brothers. Mary was a perpetual virgin. Jesus had no earthly kin. The end. What do you think? Uh, that's very good. That's not at all unlikely. Um, usually, the perpetual virginity 
Well, quite explicitly in Catholic tradition, the perpetual virginity doctrine makes James and the others into cousins, though that wouldn't necessarily mean they couldn't have authority as the closest relatives of Jesus, right? I mean, you had that kind of uh, sideways succession in various earthly empires anyway. Um uh, let's see, but you you could be right. I mean, even now there there are people that say, well, a cousin isn't the same thing as a brother, and uh, that's just not good enough. And because uh, the same problem occurs in uh, the genealogy of Jesus. Wait a second. Uh, according to uh, you know, Luke and Matthew, the lines of descent are totally different. Is it possible that uh, oh, I don't know, Luke's is the genealogy of Mary? Of course that can't be because it just plainly says Joseph. But the idea was uh, you'd you'd be saying, okay, Jesus could be virgin born, and here's the succession in the other direction, right? Uh, he, if Joseph was descended from David, that really wouldn't matter because he's not Jesus' father, really. Uh, but if Mary is descended from David, okay, there you go. The human part of him uh, is Davidic. Uh, some people figured, I think I think Raymond Brown's solution to the problem, though he admits there's no way to reconcile the two genealogies, is to say that well, it does matter that Joseph is descended from David but if he, in effect, adopted Jesus, that ought to do the trick. I really doubt that. I, I can't prove it, but it seems to me, if you said, oh, he's the son of David <coughs> by adoption, uh, that would uh, kind of undermine the uh, the authority you're seeking. Uh, but uh, so it's the same sort of a thing. Is he actually, literally, the son of Joseph and then of, therefore of David? Same thing here. Uh, James is the uh, cousin of Jesus? <laughs> well, big deal. Come on. Uh, so I wonder about that. Uh, and uh, and so your your point is a very good one. Uh, there are other theories that the perpetual virginity doctrine uh, was uh, really a reflection of uh, creation of an ideal for Christian ascetics. That I mean, it certainly functioned that way, but that doesn't really demand that it have uh, originated that way. Uh, so uh, it's possible. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, pretty good stuff. Good thinking. Whoever you are, sorry about that. Now here we go. Uh, now I think. Wait a minute, was that Dale? I think maybe that was Dale from Gordon Conwell, because this one is. I don't think it's a continuation of the last one, though there is a similarity. Uh, definitely, Dale says, Why do you think there are two different genealogies of Jesus given in Matthew and Luke? Is it possible that Luke felt the need to change Matthew's genealogy, which included the kings of Judah, because of the curse given to Jeconiah that... No man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah, Jeremiah 22.30. If so, then this would be proof that Luke was written after Matthew and was responding to it. Uh, what do you think? It's possible, but the fa if he was just correcting it, he could have done that in another way, I think. Um, and uh, it just seems to me the, they are so different that it's just uh, that might be why, but it may, but it seems more likely to me that 
what uh, Matthew and Luke or their sources, if somebody else did the genealogies, they were just doing what some genealogists do today, putting together a, a hypothetical line of descent, uh, taken for granted, well, Jesus must have been descended from David by hook or by crook. So what's the most plausible line of descent? I would gather that's what they were doing. Uh, but uh, And though it could be a Lucan correction of, uh, of Matthew, that to me uh, does not uh, seem all that uh, strong evidence. Could be, though. Could be. Uh, Dale again. Uh, he doesn't say Dale Gribble, but uh, that's my guess. You know, if it's even possible, it's probable, right? That's that's the apologist's way. Can you tell me why the Dead Sea Scrolls community insisted on the use of the solar calendar instead of the lunar calendar used by the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Lawrence Schiffman demonstrates that they were Zadokite priests who abandoned their service in the temple when the Hasmoneans took over the high priesthood, but he also shows that the Jews followed the lunar calendar during first temple times. So why would the Zadokites switch to the solar calendar? The Book of Jubilees says that Moses was commanded to follow the solar calendar and that the switch to a lunar calendar was a corruption. I wonder if this would indicate a belief in the inspiration of Jubilees which resulted in a mistaken conviction that the solar calendar was the one they should have been following along. Uh, that's what they would have, you think. What do you think? Uh, I think this, uh, this one is answered in um, Rachel Elior's fascinating book, The Three Temples, uh, on the emergence of Jewish mysticism. She says that the uh, the, the Zadokites, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls sect, she agrees, yeah, they were the displaced uh, priests during the Hasmonean era. And uh, part of the schism between them and the ones who took over was that uh, Zadokite Judaism, uh, which I think is the same thing the term en Enochic Judaism refers to, that they were... Uh, they retain the tradition of prophets, visionaries, seers, and inspired writers of new scripture. Now, we know from Josephus that, uh, that uh, and, and I guess some stuff in the Mishnah, that establishment Jews said, well, no more prophets. Uh, they stopped way back, you know, with uh, Malachi or whatever. But, of course, that's one of those propaganda techniques to to pretend to describe what happened when you're actually trying to prescribe what should and should not happen. That was a way of saying, uh, no more prophecy. Uh, we, don't, we don't want anybody to upset the apple cart. And uh, that implies there were people doing just that. And so that it, it, that would mean that whoever wrote the books of Enoch and Jubilees and the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs and all this kind of stuff, uh, the Assumption of Moses, uh, they were uh, believers in these scriptures and that new ones had continued to be produced. Uh, same thing happened among uh, the, the folks that wrote the Nag Hammadi texts, right? I mean, it's very clear there. And one of them, I think it's the, who oh boy, is it the uh, Apocalypse of James or something? I forget now. I get the Apocrypha and Apocalypse of James mixed up. And there are two of one of them. And I can't quite remember which one that is either. I think it's the two Apocalypses and the one Apocryphon. But in one of these books, 
you actually have it described that the apostles are sitting around meditating, waiting for a revelation, and James is the first to get one, and this is the writing down of it. So, yeah, apparently that's what they were doing, and they believed, in, they were also big on astronomy. They, uh, after all, you look at the book of Enoch, it's filled with that stuff. The book of Revelation is filled with that stuff. And uh, they believed that there were machine-like regularities, uh, natural laws, as later people would say, uh, to the motions of the heavens, and that uh, the, that the, now I, I don't quite know why they, uh, oh, um, divided it up this way, but they felt apparently that the lunar cycle was based on fallible observation of the phases of the moon, etc., whereas the sun almost by definition um, took a certain amount of time and all of that. I, it's a little cloudy, but uh, Rachel Elior says that, yeah, they did think it had always been a big mistake to uh, go with the lunar calendar and they wanted to go with the solar one. Again, I'm sorry, I just refer to that book, though. Rachel Elior, E-L-I-O-R, The Three Temples. Really, really fascinating. Um, let's see. This is from the mighty Sir Jan, one of the pillars of the Bible Geek Show. In a recent episode, you were talking about prohibitions of divorce in the Gospels, but you indicated that while the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke appear to have no exceptions, they are not as strict as they appear. You didn't go into details. The passages appear pretty clear to me with no room for an except. So where do you see one? Uh, well, I, I must have been saying that, because this is the only thing I can think of that I think that I might have said, I f tend to go along with uh, Martin de Balius uh, in a book he did called The Teaching of Jesus, where he says there are some things that appear, even in the wording that survives, to have been uh, observations by Jesus or by somebody in his name, whatever, uh, that were not intended as laws, but then came to function that way. And the the prime example would be uh, the divorce thing. What does Jesus say when asked by the what the Pharisees, I guess, the scribes? Uh, is it permissible? Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? And uh, Jesus says, well, what does Moses say about it first? And he says, well, he, he said, yeah, uh, if, if he wants to divorce his wife, let him draw up a bill of divorcement and send her on her way. Uh, and uh, does that settle it? Well, no. Jesus said, Moses wrote you that because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning, the intent of the creator was not so. It said he made them male and female, uh, and for this cause a man shall uh, depart from his father and mother and stick with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, um, uh, if God is what God has joined together, let no mere mortal separate. What was the point of that? Was Jesus saying, okay, no more divorce? 
uh, that was a big error. No, he's saying uh, that what you quote is a commandment in Scripture. If you're going to get divorced, and it is it is a, a provisional thing, right? If you want to put away your wife, here's what to do. But it's a shame it had to come to that. You know human beings. Sometimes it's impossible to uh, to keep a marriage together, so this is what to do. But that wasn't the intent of God. Right? This is one of those things where it's the uh, permissive will of God, so to speak. You have to deal with certain uh, undesirable circumstances. Uh, they're lesser evils, basically. I think he's saying that, uh, yeah, there is a provision for divorce. It is lawful, but let's keep in mind that uh, God really didn't and doesn't want that. Uh, and I, I think that uh, he's not trying to legislate what Jews ought to do. Uh, he's he's saying, well, yeah, there you go. There's that's, uh, Deuteronomy says so. But he's saying, uh, let's keep the, this in perspective. It's a tragedy when it happens. And Moses knew that, uh, the hardness of your hearts. Uh, I, then the Christian community, Debalius says, convincingly to my way of thinking, is that uh, naturally early Christians heard that and said, oh, he's uh, putting away the old law. Now, on that assumption, Matthew has, and that's like we don't know what Mark and Luke thought. If that was just an observation by Jesus, boy, what a what a shame. That's why it's done, but there is a higher way. I mean, that was a big thing in Jewish ethics. There are certain things that are permissible, but you shouldn't seek them out. Uh, it's just damage control when you have to. Uh, they may have thought that, um, but uh, Matthew definitely regards it as a law for the conduct of the community, which is why he then adjusts it to Deuteronomy. In a way, he's making explicit what was implicit in the other. He's saying uh, that if a man uh, puts away a woman for any cause May epipornea, except for pornea, whatever that's supposed to mean. Literally, prostitution uh, could mean generally immorality, it could mean a consanguineous marriage forbidden by Leviticus. Uh, it's hard to say. But uh, that was sort of the point. The reason the, the Pharisees are asking Jesus is that the Mosaic commandment in Deuteronomy was notoriously ambiguous if a man finds some unseemliness in his wife what the heck does that mean well um hillel and generation before jesus said well that means she's committed adultery against him but uh no, I'm sorry, that, that's uh, Shammai who said that. Hillel said, uh, could be anything. Uh, if, uh, if she burns supper, he could kick her out and be justified. Well, there was this ambiguity that occasioned the whole debate, and Matthew is saying, well, really, uh, we're getting into trouble changing that. Let's just say it again in Greek, that me uh, epipornea, whatever that is, right? Some unseemliness, okay. Uh, and uh, so he's leaving the door wide open. I think the original saying does not intend to legislate, though. Ma but though Mark and Luke probably figured it did.
Okay, Sir John again. In episode 15034 from July 17, the questioner was talking about infinities and how something being infinite means it has no boundary. That is actually a misconception as the two do not necessarily go together. For example, you can have an infinite space with a boundary. Think of an outside of a finite sphere in infinite 3D space. The space outside the sphere would be infinite but bounded by a finite surface, that of the sphere, and excluding a finite space. Or think of an infinite plane cutting the infinite... infinite. Wait a minute. Um, Or think of an infinite plane cutting the infinite 3D space in two. Here the infinite space is bounded by an infinite surface and the excluded space is also infinite. Thus we can have bounded infinite spaces. You know, because on either side the space goes on further forever. Conversely, you can have an unbounded finite space due to curvature. In 2D, think of the surface of a sphere, for example, Earth. The surface is certainly finite, but it has no boundary like a circle would have. If you go far enough, you don't fall off. You get back where you started. Our own universe could be finite in volume, yet without boundary due to curvature as well. The upshot is that an infinite deity does not imply that it is all-encompassing. You can, for example, have an infinite number of parallel infinite planes embedded in the 3D space, and that it doesn't leave room for uh, uh, a universe finite or infinite, and thus pantheism is not the only feasible option, geometrically speaking. Sorry for the mathematics geek digression here, but I just wanted to clarify. That's fascinating. Yeah, I see what you mean. You know, this brings up a pointless but uh, intriguing matter that I have thought of for, for decades on and off. Never been able to do anything with it. Could you say there is an infinite number of stars if star-filled space goes on forever? Or would you have to say, wait a minute, if they are actually stars in those distant skies, you could technically put a number on each one of them, right? I mean, it wouldn't actually be practically possible, but in principle, if it exists, you know, there's a, there's a, it's, it's definite, and uh, the sum total of all of them would have to be finite, right? But if it goes on forever, oh my gosh, uh, I gotta think about that a little more, and maybe Satori will strike. Anyhow, um, bravo, Surgeon. And then uh, thirdly, he says in episode fifteen oh three five from July eighteen, you were talking about the hypothesized illegitimacy of Jesus. Uh, look at the cute little bastard, and you mentioned your ideas about the nativity story, but did not go into detail. Schaeberg's ideas for the Gospel of Matthew seem persuasive, but the Gospel of Luke looks much more uh, clear 
regarding the miraculous nature of the conceptions. For instance, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. So what are your ideas? In the story of Tamar, there is also the detail that she had twins who, like Jacob and Esau, raced to the exit, as it were. Not much is said about them afterward. Are there any extra-biblical stories fleshing out their story? And for that matter, stories of other descendants of Jacob between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, where several genera- several centuries are glossed over. I'm pretty sure that in the Haggadah, if that's how you say it, Reuben, you can correct me, or Rabob, um, the, these um, stories providing commentary on the Torah, sometimes by retelling them or embellishing them, as in my favorite example, uh, where uh, these two rabbis are arguing over whether Abraham already wore a yarmulke, and uh, which, of course, seems a little anachronistic, right? Hence the dispute. And uh, the one rabbi says, well, of course he did. Take a look at Genesis 12, so-and-so. And the other rabbi says, and Abraham went out from there. That doesn't say anything about him wearing a yarmulke or not. And he says, Look, the person says, look, would Abraham go out without his yarmulke? Well, uh, that's a step away from actual midrash, where you might settle the question by writing an Abraham episode in which that happens. And there's plenty of stuff like that, and I think a lot of it does. There are a number of uh, stories about the Genesis patriarchs there. I just don't, I'm not familiar enough with it. But uh, the one p- source for that might be a great book called Hebrew Myths, the Book of Genesis, by um, uh, Robert Graves and Raphael, R-A-P-H-A-E-L, Patai, P-A-T-A-I. It goes into some nifty midrashic, midrashic stuff about that. Um, I uh, think that uh, the... Um, for one thing, the Gospel of Luke's Annunciation, especially with this thing, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, shows the use of an Aramaic version of Daniel, fragments of which pop up in the Dead Sea Scrolls, where something much like that is said, I think, to Nebuchadnezzar by Daniel, uh, the same wording. And so uh, I, I think it's called something Q, son of God, the fragment. But uh, I I found Sheberg's case on the Gospel of Luke unconvincing and contrived, and she eventually withdrew it. But uh, there is reason to wonder if uh, this is what um, is uh, intended by Luke. Here's why. For one thing, in manuscripts where it says uh, when they're on their way to Bethlehem for the taxation registry, instead of betrothed, in some manuscripts it says he took his wife with him, uh, implying it's uh, there. Well, at least kicking out one of the foundation blocks for the virgin birth thing. Uh, but more importantly is the fact that the Annunciation of the Angel, which is one of the several canticles, so-called, in Luke. Uh, Yeah, in in Luke, the first couple of chapters. Uh, There's one from Zacharias, one from Mary or Elizabeth, depending on which text you read, and uh, Simeon and so forth. Well, in in, uh, the one from the Angel, he... he, uh, 
Uh, wait a minute, let me just grab the uh, text and get it open here. Luke, yeah, Luke, Luke, Luke. Um, okay. Uh, let's see, let's see. Yeah, okay, here's the thing in Luke one thirty-two. No, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me go back up. Uh, 28. He came to her and said, Hail, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of the end, I'm sorry, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, Verses 20, I'm sorry, verses 32 through 33, he will be great, etc., until his, of his kingdom there will be no end. That's in poetic meter. Uh, then we have two verses in prose, or verse and a half. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I know not a man, or have no husband, the RSV has? And the angel said to her, and then we're back to verse, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Well, uh, there's a problem here, in that in none of the other canticles in the beginning of Luke is is the poetry, which is the canticle part, interrupted by prose. And uh, it makes you wonder if this is an addition, if Mary's objection is an addition, as indeed a couple of ancient manuscripts read. They, they don't have it. It's just all the poetry going throughout without this. And... Uh, even if we didn't have the manuscripts, we'd have to wonder that because verses 34 through 35a, and Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, is completely stupid, right? It doesn't make sense in the narrative because, uh, you know, I'd love to see this uh, done up with, uh, you know, what else must have happened, right? Uh, where she says, how is that that possible? I've, I'm a virgin. Uh, and I'd love to hear the angel say, well, wait a minute, you are engaged to Joseph, right? I mean, you, you're, you're probably going to have kids, right? I mean, what are you taking, birth control or something? Uh, I mean, the, the idea that this would uh, even make any sense uh, is absurd. And and the only sense it makes is as a bungling attempt to uh, insert the doctrine of the virginal conception of Jesus. 
it's a way of saying, hey, you know, she hasn't known a man, so what do you make of that? Virgin birth, right? Uh, and so, yeah, it uh, it seems to me that if that is not originally part of it, and I think it cannot be, then you don't really have any statement about this. Uh, in Daniel, he's not telling Nebuchadnezzar that his wife's going to conceive by the Holy Spirit without Nebuchadnezzar's intervention, right? It just means that, yeah, the Holy Spirit will be upon him, presumably as it was with John the Baptist. I mean, he he's filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. It has nothing to do with a pseudo-genetic miracle. So I think that uh, on a different grounds entirely, Schaeberg is sort of right after all. It's not clear at all that Luke intends uh, for us to understand a virgin, virginal conception, a miraculous conception. Okay. Thank you, Sir John. Um, let's see. Uh, well, here's something I'll tell you right now. I have no idea about the answer, but it's so interesting. This is from Androcles. It says, there's a show I used to watch a few years back on the Travel Channel called Bizarre Foods, where a guy named Andrew Zimmern... I'd be a terrible host on that show, right? For me, bizarre foods would include pickles. Anyway, um, Andrew Zimmern travels the globe eating unusual things or familiar things prepared in unusual ways. A handful of episodes that I hadn't seen before showed up on Netflix recently, so I've been watching them here and there. This evening I watched an episode filmed in Madagascar. And you sure that wasn't that Disney movie? Anyway, at the end of the episode, the host attends... Oh boy, buckle your seatbelts, folks. At the end of the episode, the host attends a circumcision ritual wherein a five-year-old boy is circumcised in the midst of a large family village celebration to mark his becoming a man. Then, as per custom, a male member of the family must eat the severed foreskin uh, off the end of a banana, no less. Uh, in this case, the honor was shared by his grandfathers. I'm absolutely not making this up. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of such a thing before, but I certainly hadn't. Well, you know, I, I never actually heard that, but it does make sense of something. I've probably mentioned to you before that uh, once, years ago, uh, I was driving in Raleigh and saw, I don't know, some fast food joint, uh, and they, they uh, had this big announcement out there on the signboard, fur skins are here and i thought uh so that's what they do with them anyway um but no i hadn't actually heard of this okay i've listened to a bit of the geek and i've heard you talk about circumcision at length before no pun intended something i don't think people generally spend a lot of time talking or thinking about in day-to-day -day life Though you might want to check out my latest Zarathustra Speaks column where I kind of uh, poke a stick in the wasp's nest on this topic. The episode of Bizarre Foods got me thinking, though. According to the narration on that show, the tradition goes back a thousand years uh, to the time when Madagascar was colonized by mainland Africans. Where do the colonizers learn this? Can we trace all circumcision back to Judaism? Oh, certainly not, by the way. They, the Egyptians practiced it, too. 
Uh, by the way, the, the Bible never claims it's uniquely Jewish. It just has a uniquely Jewish significance to it, right? Uh, what immediately came to mind was another documentary I saw many years ago about a group of people called the Lemba or Lembic Jews. These are black Africans, sub-Saharan, who claim Jewish ancestry. This can't be a coincidence, can it? Is this the connection? Is it possible that some of the practices of Judaism made their way from the Middle East down through Africa all the way to Madagascar? If so, how and when? At least a thousand years ago, right? If this happened, I guess the book didn't travel with the traditions which made it seem like it happened a lot further back in time. Wikipedia says that DNA tests show indicators of Jewish ancestry, quote, at rates even higher than the general Jewish population, unquote, in one Lemba clan. Can you shed any light on this? How far afield did Judaism travel and by what means? What's the story with the Lemba anyway? What do scholars know about this? What do you think the average Jew on the street makes of this? Could there have been or is there any evidence of religious, spiritual, or cultural ideas moving in the opposite direction? Uh, that is, traditions arising in sub-Saharan Africa making their way to the Middle East and being adopted by the people there in ancient times? If Judaism did follow this route south, why wasn't Christianity able to do the same thing, at least not before missionaries in fairly modern times? Or did it? To what extent? Well, I'd say that these uh, the the Lemba, who I gather are the same as the Falasha Jews, black Jews of Ethiopia, uh, they uh, they have their own interesting scriptures. By the way, the Apocalypse of Gorgorios and so forth, uh, and uh, they have a replica of the Ark of the Covenant, and they uh, trace their. I suppose their Judaism back to the Queen of Sheba's visit to Solomon. Of course, that in itself is a legend to try to explain it. Perfectly analogous to the Grail legends, which are trying to claim an apostolic or pre-apostolic pedigree for British non-Catholic Christianity way back in the Middle Ages. Exactly the same thing. Who knows what the original foundation was like, but yeah, apparently uh, there there was a spread of Judaism down there. I mean, we know there were uh, Jews in plenty of Jews in Alexandria and elsewhere in Ptolemaic Egypt, uh, and uh, there were Jewish temples there. And it's not really that tough to imagine them going south because somebody did to get Judaism into Ethiopia. And I don't think it's a leap to suggest that uh, it could have gone to Madagascar, though apparently these people on the Bizarre Food Show are not otherwise Jewish, right? They're, they don't practice other customs and such. Uh, missionary anthropologists have shown that uh, that when uh, the Bible is translated for sub-Saharan Africans, many of the cultures of those who convert to Christianity, of course loads and loads do that, uh, have done it, They sometimes the different tribal societies 
have more affinity for the Old Testament than the New, right? The polygamy, the sacrifices and stuff like that. They want to do that. It kind of worries and upsets the missionaries. Oh, no, Christ put an end to that. Well, then why are you giving me this Bible that says to do it? Uh, and they've already done, they've always been doing that stuff, so they just keep right on doing it. Uh, so it could be that it's just a, a more ancient cultural parallel. Uh, who knows what the the uh, transition of, of these remote, archaic customs is. As far as I know, we have evidence in the Bible for the two leading forms of circumcision, namely uh, bridegroom circumcision, which is what Moses hadn't done, and that's why God decided to kill him um, before he relented, uh, and uh, infant circumcision on the eighth day, which apparently was a replacement for the eighth-day sacrifice of the firstborn. But uh, this isn't one of them, right? This is, this is another one, and that makes me think perhaps it is uh, just an indigenous counterpart to it, or uh, just that the relation is by remote, antique, archaic dissemination before there was any Judaism or, or any of these other religions. Uh, fascinating stuff, though. Uh, of course, uh, even this, perhaps, does not beat uh, one tribe's uh, version of circumcision, about which Bruno Bettelheim, the great child psychologist, wrote a book called... Um, oh, boy. Oh, man, what is it? I oh, can't think of it. I can't believe that. Uh, but at any rate, uh, a tribe that uh, practices sub-incision, uh, where the penis is slit open uh, down the bottom of it to make it into a symbolic male vagina. Uh, that's, uh, what the heck is the title of that book? Oh, man. Symbolic Wounds. Uh, and uh, uh, so there's all kinds of weird stuff going on out there uh, in genital land. Um, okay, I guess that's it for today. Got got other things to do, though few so pleasurable as shooting my mouth off in answer to excellent questions from excellent Bible geeks. Uh, so thanks for being with me. I'll see you soon. And uh, keep those cards and letters coming in, folks. In the Bible we are told in that ancient lore of old The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. When I'm Torn Anderson. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chumba. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.